This is Being Modern, Being Human, a podcast about contemporary society. My guest today is Michelle Kunz, who is a curator of archaeology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, lecturer on museums in the 21st century at the University of Colorado, and an active field archaeologist. Thank you very much for joining me, Michelle. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You have such an impressive CV. What is the current focus of your research and what is the most exciting thing about your work personally for you? <laughs> I would say the great thing about my job is that I get to do all kinds of different projects. And this has been really, I would say, exceptional in some ways, field of archaeology. Oftentimes people, they focus in on one particular topic and really studied that topic or something around that topic for much of their career. And being in the museum setting, I have a lot of, I would say, like opportunistic things that fall on my lap that I get to explore and get to learn about that might be a little bit different than a pure academic. But that being said, I do a lot of academic research. I have currently have a couple projects in Peru going on right now on the north coast, one in the extreme north of Peru, near the town of Piura, which is just south of Ecuador. And then one that is still on the north coast, but not as far north at the site that had video that is behind me. It's called Tanya Marca. And in both of these projects, I'm studying the Moche culture, which is a culture that lived on the coast of Peru from about 250 to about 800 of the common era and were known for these really incredible temple complexes, murals, beautiful ceramics. So that's some of my main main field research right now. But like I said, I've had the opportunity to do all kinds of projects. (laughs) Wonderful. I wonder what brought you to study these cultures? Why are you interested in that? I guess I've been studying in South America now for, my goodness, over 20 25 years almost. <laughs> I can't, can't believe that. But I guess what happened was I was, I was a, when I was undergraduate, I was, um, started out as a physical therapy teacher. I was interested in sports medicine, but I had always been very fascinated with archaeology. I just thought cultures past, just people who came before us was very fascinating to me. But I just didn't see that as a real career path because I didn't know anybody who was an archaeologist. It's not like, I don't know, not there. It's not super common to do a lot of archaeologists. If you don't know other archaeologists. And I had this opportunity to go to Bolivia when I was a freshman in college. And I got to Bolivia on this volunteer outreach project. We were building a school. And I was just, my jaw dropped. I was just, this is so incredible. This is such a, so different from anything I'd experienced. I grew up in Philadelphia and Philadelphia is very much, when you learn about history, you learn about the revolution of the founding fathers. And I didn't even really know anything about Latin America at all. I came home, I changed my major to to anthropology and to Latin American studies and found my way eventually back to archaeology because archaeology is a subdiscipline of anthropology. So of anthropology being the umbrella and study of people and then people of the past in archaeology. So I was just, I found my way back to archaeology and just was really passionate about the what I'm learning about Latin America and continued to work down there. That's an exciting story. Thank you for sharing. Now I would like to talk about modern archaeology. So uh, this discipline can be traced back to ancient Greece and uh, even Egypt. 
In Renaissance Europe, the reason for the rise of archaeology was the interest in the classical culture of antiquity. Later in the 18th and 19th centuries, archaeology was a way to construct national identities in Europe. In your opinion, what is the ideological basis, so to speak, of modern archaeology? That's a really interesting question because I think that it really varies. And I don't think we could say that there's one size fits all for everyone conducting archaeology. Of course, it's going to vary globally depending on the country who, where archaeology is conducted and the researchers and where they are necess- where they are from. If they are conducting archaeology in a country where they they live, there might be a different way of thinking about what that archaeology means versus people from different countries going in and doing archaeological projects. So I don't think right now you can say that there is a overarching ideology because it really is, I would say, project by project, researcher by researcher specific. I do see some pretty, at least in the archaeology of the Americas, whereas, which is what I really focus most of my research on, I do see the sort of a shifting ideology in some ways that is pretty exciting right now, where we, for many years, it was so much focus on that research and the discovery. And now, and I think this also has to do with me being in a music setting that I'm really hyper aware of these changes, but I do see it even in, I do see it in the academy as well, where we're really working more with host communities and really trying to do things more collaboratively than they had been done even in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years. And so I do see this real shift to, to more understandings of that there are multiple ways of knowing. There's knowledge is produced through multiple outlets and it's not just the the science with the capital S that makes a project a good project. And that's a pretty exciting shift that I think it's happening. And it's not all around, <laughs> not everywhere, but it is. I do see, I do see this, this change. And what about the international dialogue in archaeology? Are there academic communities that study certain cultures, for example? How does the exchange of information happen through academia, through conferences, through other events? I think that a lot of times people are at, and I think I had said this earlier, when a lot of people, you get into archaeology in Europe. For example, I work in Peru. I did my dissertation research in Peru. And you will stick with that. And that will be the, the thing that you are known for, the study. And so there's the community of Andean archaeologists. And those are people that are from a lot of times from different countries, from the United States, but also in Bolivia and Peru and Chile. And that becomes a community of archaeologists that interact. We, I would say, in some of the national conferences, I have not been to many international conferences, but in our more national conferences, we do, you do have the opportunity to talk with other people working in other fields, but, and for example, it's like people are working on Mayan materials and in our national conferences, there are international archaeology is represented as well. So that would be the opportunity to talk about other, other, for example, other regions of the world. But I think in many ways, it's an insular type thing. We really are talking with kind of a similar community of people in developing a lot of ideas. 
That's really interesting. And I wonder what is the scope of modern archaeology? How, how much is still hidden under the ground and needs to be excavated? <laughs> That's the million dollar question, right? I don't know. I think that, so I work in a museum where we have, where paleontology is really big. And obviously that's quite different than archaeology. But the paleontologists believe that there is still so much more out there to discover. Whereas I don't know if we can say the same in archaeology. I think that so much of we are, the world is so populated and, and people live today where people lived in the past. And so much of what is, was there to discover has really, a lot of it has been discovered, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to find things here and there, one-offs, really exciting things that will change the direction of the old but I don't think it's going to be on a scale like we saw even 100 years ago or 120 years ago when the discipline was more in its infancy and when we we're really starting to study these places and objects more systematically. What are the uh, most interesting and exciting discoveries, say, of the 21st century in general in the world? I think that's interesting as well, because like I said, I don't think we're seeing these grand discoveries like we did 100, 150 years ago. But there's been some exciting things. And I would say things that have um, stood out for me just in terms of being like, oh, that's an interesting discovery was, well, Richard III, who found under the parking lot in, in England. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> just one-off discovery. But there's this, the whole, I would say, human evolutionary tree has been quite disrupted in the last 20 years. And I don't even, I'm not even up on it because there's just been so many new discoveries of our ancestors in, and what that might have looked like. And I think that these are maybe smaller discoveries here, something here, something there, but cumulatively, it's really rewriting the history of early humans. What about you personally? What was the most exciting thing for you in your research and in your excavations? <laughs> oh man, I have had so many fun opportunities for discovery, excavation. And it's interesting too, because there's these discoveries that happen, right? The incredible signs. And I've had the opportunity many years ago now to work on a chamber tomb of a priestess from the Mojang culture. And this was like, we discovered the tomb, found that she was buried with sacrificial victims and museum quality ceramics and all kinds of metallurgy. It was just one of those moments where you're like, wow, this is just the coolest thing. But then little things, I think that might not seem as exciting to the general public end up being really even more important discoveries, at least for my work. And so, for example, I do a lot of radiocarbon data, just trying to understand sequences of when things would have happened. Now that might seem pretty mundane, but to me, it's, oh, wow, we can understand like shifts in society that may have occurred because of um, an increase in radiocarbon contextualized radiocarbon date. So that's been pretty exciting for my work, especially on the Mojang. But I've also had these really fun opportunities to work, for example, on Egyptian mummies that we have in the museum. And just working with a massive team of people who helped us to look at more updated scientific techniques to understand the lives of these two women, these two individuals. And we to be able to contextualize the stories that we tell 
in the museum about these particular particular people, that's been really that's a really rewarding experience and less of a discovery and more of a let's take let's bring our technology modern era into the 21st century to try and learn more about something that's been around since 1903, honestly, in Colorado. <laughs> I'm curious, you're doing excavations, so you discover some objects. Where do they go? Do you, all of them go to museums or some repositories? How does that work? That's, that's a good question. It really varies depending on where you're doing the excavations. And so my work in Peru, all of those materials go to repositories in Peru in the particular departments where those excavations take place. I have a project that I worked on here in Colorado, practically in my backyard. Those materials are all at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science where I work. And then enough, I have another project where we're working with the Zuni tribe in New Mexico. We excavated a great kiva there a couple of years ago, did a lot of surveying in the region, and we've been working really closely with the elders to co-create that history, that, that narrative, that story. And ultimately, with their guidance, we decided we're going to rebury all of those artifacts that came, which is not a very common way of approaching things. But we're really it's in this world right now where we're facing a curation crisis, where there's just so much stuff. And it's a matter of what is the right thing to do. And in this case, the right thing to do is to we got the information we needed and those materials are going to go back in the ground. I could never think it is possible. And what about techniques that modern archaeologists use? I guess the advancement in technology have contributed to your field as well. Could you talk about that? It, I feel like it's just wide open. When I first started, I, well, I guess not first started, but I did my master's degree in geophysical archaeology. So using mainly ground penetrating radar to see below the surface to understand what that looked like before we put a shovel in the ground. Because I think that that's, to me, the only way to do archaeology. It's the most responsible way to do archaeology is to know a little bit about what's there before you go and dig. So using ground penetrating radar, magnetometry, other techniques that help us understand that subsurface environment. But, and then I... For many years, I was keeping up on that technique and then drones became a thing and photogrammetry became a thing. And I was trying to keep up. And finally, I'm just like, I can't keep up with this. So I now have to hire people <laughs> to come and do all that for me. It's really hard because it's just there's been so many advances so rapidly and it's so exciting. But that we have all these tools now and that we can use them and integrate them and be able to see things in the way that we've not been able to see before. And I think that really goes back to your question of new discoveries. I think a lot of this is just seeing better what may have been there before and seeing it differently because we have those, at least some of these more remote sensing techniques. Beyond that, the analytical tools are just that we're able to incorporate in archaeology and mind-blowing, the elemental analysis and molecular analyses that you can do on, for example, pottery paste and the pigments and trying to understand where those come from and um, sourcing um, different stone materials to understand trade and movement. So there's just, there's so much and it's, 
it's really all about collaborating with the right people now. And in terms of my opinion, because it, you can't do it all as one person. You have to be able to really build that team that can utilize all these tools that we have. What is the borderline between archaeologists and historians? After the excavations, historians come and try to understand what kind of society it was and how it functions. How does that work? It's an interesting question because the, as archaeologists, that's our job is to understand people and to understand how the societies worked in the culture. So in many ways, I guess you could consider archaeologists and his, historians were just doing it differently. And the way that I've always really understood the difference, at least in the, the way that the academy has had it set up for many years, is that history has is really text-based. And so you're able to read about the people in the past, right? Or And it's obviously from whatever perspective of the writer. And so that's really where a lot of the unpacking comes for historians for trying to understand that historical context in which some of the texts are written and art history being looking at the physical objects or and or the paintings and trying also to contextualize that in terms of the moment. In archaeology, we don't, at least in the Americas and with the exception of maybe with the Maya area, we don't have the writing that we don't have those texts. And the way that we can understand the past is, is through that material record. And that material record is what we're digging out of the ground and we're saying exactly where something is to be able to paint the picture of what that time was years and years ago. We also have ethno-historic accounts and we use oral histories, different different accounts to build out that picture. But so I would say in many ways, we're doing the same thing. And we could, we, I don't know the distinction really is with the shovel in the ground, but all of it is really contextualizing and trying to understand our past. And what does it take to be an archaeologist? What kind of mindset is that? I think anybody can be an archaeologist because I think there are, like I was saying, there's so many different aspects and there's so many different ways you plug in. So if you're an artist, there's always, there's site drawings to do where you draw the artist acts that can be done. There's, there's the hyper analytical folks that can work in the lab with the machines and the material. And then you've got your field people who love to be outside, love to be dirty. And so I think that there's rooms for everybody in archaeology. I do think it takes a, because there are not a plethora of jobs. It's a very competitive discipline that you really have to, it's, it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication and to be able to get to the point where you can have a job, so to speak. But, but then there's also a variety of types of jobs in archaeology, especially if you're working in the, um, in North America with contract archaeology. So lots of positions for people. Every, anytime you want to do any kind of construction on public land, you have to have it archaeologically surveyed before that and mon- or monitored if they're if digging. And so there's plenty of jobs in that respect for that may, may not take the same level of study <laughs> that to go out and like create research projects would take. What about your work as a curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science? What does it involve? So you 
come to the museum? What is your normal day or week or month? The interesting thing is that there's never a typical kind of day with this job. It's I would say that there's three main things that I do. I do obviously research, so field work, excavations, or survey work. I work in our collections, so we have collections from all over the world, and I do everything from helping to facilitate research on those collections to doing some research myself. We've just about finished moving our collection, so that's taken a lot of time. We have to reorganize things, which is pretty, it's pretty cool because we had to, we had everything in our old spaces throughout the building organized by material type and we're reorganizing by culture groups so that it's much more accessible for descended communities and really anybody to come in because people don't come in and just say I want to see baskets they usually come in and say I want to see everything that you have on Hopi so it's a little bit it's a little bit different and my other main thing is outreach I do a lot of public speaking and events try just to be interfacing with the public because I think that is so important people are inherently interested in archaeology and collectively as archaeologists we are not very good at communicating the what we do with people and so I'm very passionate about about doing a better job at that and bringing people into the into the fold into the behind the scenes like showing what we do a little bit more accessibly as a curator, I suppose you make decisions what will be in your collection. What are the criteria and principles? How do you decide that? Actually, I do not bring a lot of materials into the collection. As I was saying before, I think we have a bit of a crisis in terms of not only space, but why the, the question of why have an object collection, I think really needs to be critically evaluated. And I have a pretty high standard on the why it comes into this collection, particularly why the Denver. And we also, since I work so much with international, the international collections, we, I, we as an, as an institution have a very high ethical bar. And so we abide by all UNESCO convention. Obviously, most institutions do this, but Anything that is, we don't know when it was acquired or if it was pre-1970. These are things that we need to really evaluate and see if this is something appropriate to, to bring in. And most of the time, it's not because it's usually something like it. Or if it's something that's like, you know, someone finds something in their grandma's attic and they have no idea. They're like, this looks cool. Do you want it? So you say, no, because we don't know anything about it. They're the... I would say that it's probably a handful of things that I've brought into the collection over the last 10 years that I've been there because of the standard. But I like to try and provide information on where other people could look for these objects, especially if they're things that could be really, really of value to other institutions. That ethical bar you mentioned has to do with the post-colonial trend that has been for decades now. How does it impact museums and how does it reflect in museum activities? I've been teaching this class on the museums in the 21st century for about eight years now. And when I first started teaching this class and teaching about repatriation and international repatriation and all of that, it's, it was, I felt like there were not a lot of institutions 
engaged in this conversation. And I would say in the last three years, again, there's just been this huge explosion of institutions really taking the conversation seriously and doing, working towards in more inclusivity and to really, really take a hard look at that collection and say, what is in here and why is it here? And I remember having a conversation a while back about, about, I would split with a, a colleague and say, our institution at the Denver Museum, what are you going to do? Are you going to empty museum? Are you giving everything back? And it's that it's of course not. But I think that if there are names of things that are that are not supposed to be here, we need to give those things back. I think that conversation should be always open and not the starting point is like, no, we're not going to do this because it belongs there. And so we at the Denver Museum recently patriated a bunch of bigongo, which are the funerary, they're funerary wooden post statues of the Michichimba in Kenya. And they are ancestors. They themselves are the ancestors. And there's no way they should have been in museum collections. They were ripped from the ground. And so these are the types of things that we're like, yeah, this is the type of stuff that the if the people want it back, we need to do what we can as news professionals to get these materials back. And we've been very involved with, as most institutions should be, but with NAGPRA and the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act, which is now over 30 years old, but which says that any materials that, or any museum that receives federal funding needs to evaluate the materials that are in the collection in terms of Native American materials that are funerary objects, sacred objects, and human remains, and work to get those back to where they need to go. And, and I'm very passionate that we have not done a good job of ownership. Not as a nation, we have not done a very good job at holding this up. There's many hurdles because funding is never really that prevalent, but I think within the last year, people are just becoming a lot more aware of these issues, I would say globally, but also I, even in, even nationally, the conversation has just, the level of conversation has increased in the last three years. And I think right now, and in the States, especially right now, we have a lot of DEAI, diversity, equity, accessibility, inclusion, work that has been going on at a lot of institutions and there's just so much room for anthropologists in in these conversations because of the training that we've received over the years and it i would say that i'm hoping that we're going to see a lot more jobs for anthropologists slash archaeologists in these in institutions like this because i'm really hoping that we'll be able to take a much more critical look at understanding why we have these things and what might be the right thing to do with them moving forward. Yeah, this moral shift is really important. And uh, another aspect of it is something that you do as well, that is uh, community-based archaeology that is conducted in collaboration with Indigenous people. Could you explain more what is it and how do you do it? Sure, my passion is really getting archaeology out there to the public. And so this means, to me, this means all public. I don't 
oftentimes it's focusing on one folks. But for me, it was really, let's bring in stakeholders from everywhere when we're projects that in different capacities. And I think my really example, the one that top of my mind is a project I did in Golden, Colorado, on a site called Magic Mountain, where we opened up the site for volunteers to participate with us, a lot of training for those volunteers. We had tours every day. We were out there for about five weeks total. We had over 3,000 people come through on tours, and we had a part of the site set aside where the public could actually dig and to let them actually understand what it's like to dig, to collect the dirt, to, to sift the dirt, to look for artifacts. And I don't, and this is not something that's really typical or how I've been typically really done because there's an idea that, oh, they'll mess it up. <laughs> well, I wanted to take the approach. Of, We're going to watch what's going on. And this is more of an opportunity than there's more to be from this experience than the, than the actual loss that will occur from letting a couple people dig in a one meter by one meter hole. And, and in that effort, we also invited representatives from all the tribes that have historical affiliation with the state of Colorado's 48 tribes. We had, we had five different tribes, rebel representatives come. We created from these conversations, Native American internships, we had an internship with students from underserved communities in the Denver area. So we really were trying to be as, as inclusive as possible and really trying to connect. The whole idea was, this is a place that people love today. It's right at a trailhead. Us Coloradans really like hiking and biking and stuff. So right at this trailhead and people use it all the time. This was one of the most important archaeological sites in this whole region. And today it's still so important to the people of Colorado. And it's so really making that connection of place with that is not necessarily, it goes beyond even just the who lived here before, because it's like people can connect with who lived here before by by recognizing themselves in that place and seeing uh, this is something I really enjoy. Wow, people enjoyed this 9,000 years ago. And I think because of that, we, we were quite successful with the project because it was not just about, oh, there's people they lived here before, which is, of course, the coolest thing ever and interesting. But it's also like, okay, and I'm a part of this story because it, that personal relevancy thing, I feel like needs to come in when we're talking about getting people excited about archaeology. It's okay. How can we all relate to this as being humans? And it's like beyond, beyond just it's this tribe that was there, or that tribe that was there. We all have a part of that was for me, what community archaeology really is, what really is about. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, it's a sense of belonging that is important. And this collaborative work does create that sense of connection with the people around you who live around you now and those who lived before. My last question is the one I ask all my guests, and it's related to the title of my podcast, Being Modern, Being Human. So what does it mean to you be, to be modern and human? I think it's interesting that your last question, but I feel like what I even just said is part of it. It's we're all here, right? We're humans. And I'll go to a quote by Ruth Benedict, and I might not get it exactly right, but she was an anthropologist back in the 1930s. And she said, the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences or to, and something along those lines. So basically it's, we're all, 
we're all here and we're all made up of the same stuff and we're all trying to do our own things way that we think is the best way to do them. And there's a common connectivity there. And if we take the moment to look at other people and what they're doing and not think of it weird or different, just reflect on how it might not be the way we do it, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily wrong or something we should be like upset about. And just that reflection. To me, that's what archaeology allows us to do is to put ourselves in other people's shoes. Think about different worldviews. Think about the world at a different time when we didn't have modern politics, modern nation states. And and it just, I feel like it levels the playing field and makes us, has the opportunity to let us appreciate each other more than, than maybe some other disciplines. Great answer. Let's live in the present and let's learn our past. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, feel free to leave a rating or review on one of your favorite podcast platforms. This will help others discover the podcast and enjoy it as much as you do. Thank you.